Welcome to Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda. I'm Shanda Sung, and I'm a comedian. And I'm Ashley Morgan, and I'm a farmer. We've been best friends since we were nine years old. Welcome to our show, where we teach each other all kinds of things that cover our wide range of knowledge and interests. And today's episode is Betrayals. Ooh. Sounds very like Oxygen Network. (laughs) Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda present Betrayals. (laughs) <laughs> it's not sexy none of it no it's not that sexy that's weird <laughs> i know i did i did that's just i don't know i've listened to too much true crime that it sounds a little bit like snapped <laughs> yeah but that's yeah that's not the type of betrayals we're talking about next betrayals betrayals part two will be like relationship betrayal you know killer wives or something yeah there you go We'll make it sexy. I'm writing future episodes already. Yeah. <laughs> Sex sells, baby. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll be innovators. We'll be the first podcast to ever talk about killer wives. <laughs> I know. It, we'll start a trend. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have a feeling that people would be into it. Yeah. And we are not talking about those betrayals. It's tough. I don't feel like I've been betrayed a lot. That's good. Me either. Yeah. Except. Oh, boy. 2002. In the cafetorium of Eastside High School, there was a week when my best friend in the whole world (laughs) went and sat at the popular table. (laughs) I didn't get to sit at the popular table because I was not popular enough for the popular table. (laughs) But she's just over there laughing that laugh, (laughs) cackling it up with all the popular kids (laughs) while I'm over there eating my gushers at the nerd table. (laughs) Okay. But in my defense, I did only last a week. So (laughs) before they were like, yikes, get out. (laughs) Go back to your nerd friend, nerd. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. In your defense, given the opportunity, I would have absolutely left you in the dust to go sit at the popular table. It's so funny how our school was moderately clicky. It was so small that things overlapped. So the band geeks were also athletes and the athletes were also in theater. And, you know, like... Because our school was so small, you just didn't have enough individual people to fill up these slots. So, yeah, there was a lot of overlap. So it was kind of clicky, but not really. And yeah, I think once we got older into our junior and senior year in particular, we were just kind of like, man, clicks blow. Let's just like people and not like people for who they are and not what group they run in. And actually, we had great success. (laughs) Yeah. Liked a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think we did pretty well those last two years. Mm -hmm. We kind of just did our thing and it worked out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Junior high was kind of brutal. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Junior high was weird. Junior. I mean, junior high kids are the worst. Yeah. And I'm going to have one in a few years and I'm afraid. Yikes. (laughs) He will betray you by going and sitting with the popular kids. <laughs> he will. Yeah, he will. Absolutely. I am very aware that my, the time that they want to spend with me is so limited. Yeah. He's going to be like, Mom, you're so embarrassing. Get out of here. The popular kids are going to make fun of me. And you'll be like, oh, <laughs> oh, 
This is just like when Ashley did that to me. (laughs) Shady, you're so embarrassing. (laughs) Oh, hey, I'm back. Sorry I said those things. (laughs) I apparently, too, am embarrassing. So, (laughs) yeah. Who knew? (laughs) I did. I knew. (laughs) Yeah, you sure did. That's why I'm just sitting there like, she'll be back. She'll be back. She'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) I was. Um, will you have me back, please? <laughs> yeah, I did. I welcomed you with open arms. I think it was because, yeah, you know, deep in my heart of hearts, I was like, I would absolutely have done that. And, you know, good for her. I was ultimately proud of you. Thanks. Yeah. Short lived, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. And do you still talk to any of those girls that were at the popular table? Because I do not. I don't even remember who you were talking about. So obviously not. <laughs> Hey, you're the most popular girl in my life, okay? Whoop, whoop. Yeah, I do have upwards of 300 followers on Instagram. You are the popular girl. (laughs) Popular in my Uh, book. No, in the world of comedy, that is so few. (laughs) Well, I am ultimately glad that we do not have much in the way of betrayals. That's uh, that's a pretty good life. It's pretty drama free, in my opinion. Yeah. It's good. It's good. And especially the types of betrayals that we're going to talk about today, because Ooh, they are, yeah. man, they are not, not as light and fun as a lunchroom betrayal. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Why don't we get right into it? Because we got a lot to unpack in this episode. So let's get to it rather quickly, shall we? Yeah, I think that sounds good. I think we can also just mention that we were struggling with the theme of this episode. <laughs> yeah. And we considered calling it Brutal Ends. Yeah. So it gets really murdery. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Yeah. So, so prepare yourselves for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you're aware, a little foreshadowing for you. But yes, you are up first. I am. So I'm excited to hear about what you're going to talk about. I know a little bit about it. Yeah. I got some nitty gritty uh, details in there that I did not fill you in on. So yeah you also will be surprised so today for my betrayal i am going to talk about george armstrong custer better known as general custer yes george armstrong custer was born december 5th 1839 in new rumley ohio and he grew up kind of splitting his time between ohio and michigan where he lived with his half-sister He graduated from college in Ohio in 1856 and immediately went into the military academy, from which he graduated in 1861. Fun fact, he was last in his class. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a little something for a little bit of trivia for you. (laughs) Right afterwards, he immediately joined the army pretty much right at the start of the Civil War. And he moved up the ranks pretty quickly. He really had a knack for war and had no qualms about seeing action. And he rose up the ranks pretty quickly. Well, when you come in at dead last, you know, there's really only way to one way to go. Yeah, you got a lot to prove. <laughs> yeah, right. He did see action in a lot of the bigger battles. He was there in Gettysburg. He was at Yellow Tavern and he was present for Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox. So he was right in the fray. And he was a young Mm -hmm. man. He was in his early 20s during that time. 
And so he actually got a lot of accolades for his work in the Civil War. Now, after the Civil War, like many of those guys, he went to the frontier and he was stationed out in Kansas. His job was to lead the 7th Cavalry. He, unfortunately, did not adapt well to life on the plains. He made a lot of bad decisions. Mm. And it was very unlike him, I guess, because he showed so much promise during the war that once he kind of got out west, he started acting kind of weird and erratic. Mm. He made bad decisions like ordering any deserters to be shot on sight, where the rule of thumb was they would get a trial at the very yeah. least. And he was like, nope, shoot them on sight. We do not tolerate deserters. One time while unloading provisions, abandoned his post, not deserted, but he did abandon his post yeah. to go visit his wife, his wife, Libby, who they were madly in love and yeah, hyped each other up. And he was like, I need to see my lady. So y'all have fun with this. Adios, I'm out of here. And he got court-martialed for that. But not shot on sight. Not shot on sight. Do as I say, not as I do, right? Exactly. And he was demoted for a little while. Mm. Now, here's the thing about him. He thought he was some famous big shot Civil War hero. Mm. And in some regards, he was. He had a reputation that followed him when he moved out west. But he was also just kind of a guy. Yeah. <laughs> he played himself up. He had a lot of hype. His wife hyped him up, too. So he almost had a reputation that preceded him. But a lot of it was based on rumor and mm. storytelling, you know, more so than yeah. actual actions. He really played up his looks as well. For example, he would perfume his luscious blonde locks that oh. he was very well known for. He also was known to embellish his uniforms. Even during the Civil War, he would mm -hmm. add adornments to it. When he was out on the prairie and the general uniform was made out of buckskin, he would essentially like bedazzle his buckskin. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> uh, he was known to wear a red tie or a red sash because that red really stood out. Mm. And he liked the attention that it got. It drew the eye to him. And then he also was known for wearing a large, wide-brimmed hat that had a dual purpose. One, it caught people's attention, but also he was fair-skinned and blonde. So yeah. he had to keep from getting sunburnt on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. So he wore this big hat, red sash, adorned buckskin. He was quite a sight to behold. Because of his aggressive nature and mm -hmm. had no qualms about getting right into the action of things, he got his status back as major general and led his cavalry because the army was having trouble with Indians. And mm -hmm. so they said, well, you're a military guy. We're going to disregard your court martial and we're going to send you out into some skirmishes with quote-unquote mm -hmm. hostile Indians. One of the most noted ones for him was in the fall of 1868. 
he was sent to attack a village that was led by Cheyenne leader Black Kettle. Mm -hmm. It was a... (laughs) I'm saying this from the perspective of perhaps the white man and the U.S. military, but it was ultimately a successful Mm. raid, mostly because Black Kettle and a lot of the men of the group were out on a hunting expedition. So when they showed up to the village, it was mostly women, children, and elderly people. Mm. But because it was such a successful capturing and whatever you want to call it, and the fact that he went in there so... I'm trying not to say things with sarcasm. Like, I'm trying to... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm trying not to... I'm trying to stay neutral, I suppose, but it's really hard to do. I was always taught the white man's version of the history, so I now have a different perspective, so I'm trying not to be sarcastic when I say these things. But after this big attack and after this, you know, quote-unquote successful mission, he was dubbed America's top Indian fighter, and that was the reputation Mm. he had. And... Of course, he loved that. Yeah. But how much of it was his bluster, his confidence, his yes. showiness? You know, he yeah. was the online influencer <laughs> of yes. the 1860s. Like, <laughs> I, it's all about how I look and how I show up. And if I speak with confidence, people are going to believe what I say, sure. even though they're not getting the whole truth. Yeah. So in 1874, he was sent on a mission to investigate rumors. That there was gold in them their hills. He was sent to the Black Hills area, which is what is present day South Dakota and Wyoming, because there were rumors that there was gold. Now, Mm -hmm. the problem with that area is that the U.S. government had made a treaty with the Native Americans that were there and said, "Okay, we will honor the fact that this is sacred hunting ground to you and you will Mm -hmm. be allowed to stay. It's barren land that we don't want. You can have it. They created a treaty and the Native Americans that lived in that area were like, great, whatever. Mm -hmm. Thank you for letting us keep the land we already have. (laughs) Yeah, right. Again, sorry. Sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) So here's where a bit of the betrayal comes into play. Custer went out to investigate and came back and kind of exaggerated about the amount of gold that was there. Mm. So the... U.S. government told the Lakota Sioux and the Northern Cheyenne that lived in that region saying, Mm -hmm. hey, I know we said you could stay, but now we want that land. So you need to vacate by January of 1876 or you will be listed as hostile. Now, this was over winter camping for them. So Mm -hmm. some of the more remote camps never got the message. The ones who did get the message, some said, fuck that. Yeah, we have a treaty. (laughs) We were told we could stay. Yeah, and that you all would leave us alone. Right. And we don't give two shits about your gold. Yeah. If there even is any. So, no, fuck you. So, once January rolled around and the deadline had passed, and the Native Americans that remained we're still there military started making threats like y'all need to get out Mm -hmm. get out or we're gonna come in so the warriors decided well i think they're taking this seriously and they're gonna come into our space so 
the warriors from all the different regions came together and they came together in defiance under Sioux leader Sitting Bull, Mm -hmm. whom we learned a little bit about as being Annie Oakley's BFF in our Wild West episode. So he is the leader of this warrior camp and they locate at Little Bighorn River in what is now southern Montana. Late May 1876, the government sends the army out to clean house, essentially. Mm -hmm. The army groups are divided up into three sections. One is going to come at this area from the east, one from the south, and one from the west. And they're essentially going to round everybody up and either kill them or cart them off. Mm-hmm. And reclaim that space as U.S. soil owned by the government. All on the word of General Custer that there's gold. Yeah, that he confirmed that there's rumors that there's gold there. Mm. Custer's 7th Cavalry that he was leading was the largest of the three army sections that were heading out. Yeah. They were to come in from the West. So on June 25th, as they were coming around the west side into southern Montana, they stumbled upon Sitting Bull and the Warrior Village. What they had originally planned to do and what they should have done is they wanted to do a little recon for about a day because they had not been sighted yet. And so they should have and Somebody had suggested, hey, let's do a little recon. Let's figure out how many there are, what's going on. Let's get a game plan and we'll attack them tomorrow at like noon. Yeah. And Custer said, well, there's 200 of us. There's 800 of them. We're Mm -hmm. smarter and white and we're better. We have guns and shit and horses and whatnot, and, like, we're going to trounce them, so I'm not concerned. Actually, let's split up and try to attack them from three sides because they're going to run away like cowards and tell others that we're coming. So let's try to get them while we can. Yeah. And so he split up his little cavalry into three sections to surround Sitting Bull in the Warrior Village. They ran into some trouble pretty quick. First of all, because they split up, they could not help each other. Right. When one started to get overwhelmed, another was they expected them to run. And of course, they fought back. Of course. (laughs) Of course. The Native American warriors there also had guns. Mm Mm-hmm. And instead of 800 of them, there were 2,000 of them. Oh, no. So the bloody battle lasted a couple of hours. All of Custer and his 200 men were killed. Wiped them out. Horses included. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Wow. This is known as the Battle of the Little Bighorn or Custer's Last Stand. Mm. No white man lived to tell the tale of what Mm. happened there. The reason that we know what we know from history books was either what warriors had said when they were there or 
the search party that came to find them a few days mm-hmm. later found them all dead, including the horses, and Custer was found naked, scalped with a bullet hole in his chest and in his head. And they kind of pieced together that he was killed in battle, that his body was mutilated because he was a leader, and Mm -hmm. he was ultimately dubbed a hero, died fighting the mighty savages, you know. Yeah. And so paintings were done of him, statues were erected, and he was touted as being this Indian war hero who died in battle. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Because, like I said, no white man lived to tell the tale of what happened Mm -hmm. that day. But plenty of Native American warriors did. Yes. And so according to Cheyenne oral history that was passed on 150 plus years, Mm -hmm. a Cheyenne warrior named buffalo calf road woman is the one who is actually credited for killing custer did you say woman woman all right native americans allowed women warriors yeah encouraged it she had gone into many battles and was quite a leader and Mm. she is the one who is ultimately credited for killing him and the story goes that she charged at him grabbed his saber knocked him off his horse, and killed him. Then afterwards, other women came up and stabbed sharp spikes into his ears and said, you will listen to our people in the next world. Wow. Damn! Jeez. (laughs) They also drove spikes into the tip of his penis for the crimes he had committed against the women and children at Black Kettle's village. All right. Because what I did not mention prior to was, yes, they captured, but they also raped and killed many of those women. Yeah. And so in order for a bit of revenge, they shoved spikes into his penis and said, that is what you get. And because you and your government betrayed us, we are jabbing spikes into your ears so you can hear us better next time. When we say, fuck you. (laughs) Dang. Wow. Yes. So it is also said that Buffalo Calf Road Woman kept his saber and wore it for many years. Mm -hmm. The Cheyenne women also honored her story and her history and her leadership as a warrior by wearing sheaths with silver drops attached to their belts as kind of like mock sabers on their belts. So that is just an amazing story that I had no idea existed. Yeah, that side of it is not in the history books taught to... Of course it's not! Children (laughs) in public schools in predominantly white areas. Yeah, of course (laughs) it's not. So the stories around Custer's death are highly debated, and Mm. his legacy is somewhat controversial. During his lifetime and shortly after, he was dubbed a hero. You know, a hero of the Civil War, a hero of the Indian Wars, a great leader, blah, blah, blah. Now, 
mid 20th century, it kind of starts to change and people start looking at other stories and other perspectives and dig a little deeper. And they're like, hold up, (laughs) maybe he's not as great as he was once touted to be. Maybe he was a PR master. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And that's how we got to where we are. It is ultimately highly debated around his death, around his legacy, depending on what perspective you take, depending on what sources you read, depending on what you choose to believe is true. I would Mm -hmm. like to think that angry women drove spikes into his ears and penis because, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Too many stories of groups of women and children being brutalized without any hope of revenge. Yes exist in history and so to hear of some that actually get revenge is yes it's kind of (laughs) nice exactly exactly right yeah i like to think it's true because what's that saying history is written by the winners yeah (laughs) history is written by the victors or however that saying goes so ah i mean they won that one (laughs) yeah they did so that was the very brutal death of general custer but Mm -hmm. He got there because not only did he lie and exaggerate about the gold that was there, but then the U.S. government betrayed the Native Americans by going against the treaty that they had agreed upon. And so, I don't know, he had it coming. He had it coming. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Another fun fact I came across, uh, kind of off topic, but a little on topic, of all of the cavalry soldiers and horses that were killed that day only one horse survived it was Mm -hmm. terribly wounded but it did survive and make a recovery and so that horse when they did military parades afterwards especially when it was the seventh cavalry that was marching in parades they would saddle this horse and march it in a parade with no rider to kind Mm of honor those military personnel that died at little bighorn So that was kind of neat. Yeah. And interesting. But Mm -hmm. yeah, betrayal, brutal death. I believe my story fits both categories. Yes. (laughs) So yes, there's, of course, more to the story. If you want to look it up, I highly encourage that you do. That's all I have to say about General Custer and his awesome death. And also, you know, shedding light on the lady who is credited as killing him. All right. Yeah. So that's all I had to say about that. Let's take a quick break, hear a word from our sponsors. And yeah, I'm pretty excited to hear about your betrayal and brutal death. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we are back. It's my turn. And I'm going to talk about, so as I was listening to yours, Mm -hmm. I think ours are going to line up even more than we expected. I also have betrayal. I also have brutal death. I also have questions about the veracity of the original story Mm. new details have emerged things like that yes so i am going to talk about the rosenbergs is that a name that like rings a bell for you at all not really so it did for me just rang a bell as i was going through looking up i think i googled like famous betrayals (laughs) (laughs) i've done that before (laughs) very professional outfit over here (laughs) but they came up and uh i dug a little deeper and there's just so much to this story 
yeah, so feel free to dig deeper on any of this and there I'm sure there is more there but oh yeah it was very interesting learning all about this so the Rosenbergs were Soviet spies in the 1940s providing secrets about military equipment to the Soviet Union and were convicted and executed for their crimes hmm to start at the beginning, Julius Rosenberg was born May 12th, 1918 in New York City. Ethel Greenglass was born September 28th, 1915 in New York City. So she was three years older than him, but they lived sort of near each other in New York City. They were both Jewish and they attended Jewish schools, kind of ran in similar groups and in 1936, they met when Julius was 18 and Ethel was 21, and they met at a Young Communist League meeting. So like many young Jewish people in New York City in the 1930s, they began looking to communism as a different solution to the rise of fascism they were seeing in Europe. and. Really, the young Jewish population in New York City really took to communism in the early 1930s. But in the late 1930s, when the Soviet Union allied itself with Germany, a lot of those people jumped off the communism wagon because they're saying, OK, we were looking to communism as a solution for fascism. But now the communists are allying themselves with the fascists. This is obviously not what I thought it was. Mm. So there were a lot of people who abandoned communism at that time, at the end of the 1930s. The Rosenbergs were not <laughs> those people who abandoned communism. Mm. They were still very much members of the Young Communist Party throughout the 1930s and into the 1940s. And Julius went to college and majored in electrical engineering, and he joined the Army Signal Corps as a civilian in 1940. And the Army Signal Corps is a branch of the Army that manages communications and information systems, kind of exactly what it sounds like. And he worked as an engineer inspector for a short time, but they found out that he was a communist. Hmm. And they were like, you're out. <laughs> This is not what we want in the United States Army, believe it or not. So, <laughs> bye. <laughs> Ethel was working as a secretary in various places at this time. They had gotten married in 1939 when they were 21 and 24 and had two sons, Michael and Robert. Julius, after he had worked at the Army Signal Corps, he worked at another place that did electrical engineering called Emerson. And he was working there when he was contacted and recruited by the Interior Ministry of the Soviet Union to become a spy. And that was in 1942. So as I had said, the USSR had allied itself with Germany in 1939. But then in 1941, Germany attacked the USSR. And so that made them change their tune. And then the Soviet Union said, all right, we're against Germany. Now we're going to fight against Germany with the Western powers. So they changed sides in the war, but the Western powers were still like, we're going to hold you at arm's length <laughs> because 
<laughs> we don't trust you, <laughs> but thank you for your help, I guess, was kind of the situation. Because you would still be on their side if they had for attacked sure. you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So even though they were technically an ally of the United States at that time, the United States was not sharing any information with them about military strategies, military equipment, development of technology, and certainly not anything about the United States' pet project of building the atomic bomb. <laughs> <laughs> they were not looping in the Soviet Union on that project, believe it or not. Good idea. Yeah. Well, Julius had been recruited to spy for the Soviet Union, and he was passing on information about communications technology, including a blueprint of a proximity fuse that the United States has developed. He recruited a few other spies, people that he worked with, other engineers, and one of the main people he recruited was his brother-in-law. Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, was working at Los Alamos National Laboratory on the Manhattan Project, on the project that was developing the atomic bomb. This was kind of a big get. <laughs> Obviously, mm -hmm. this is a huge project that the United States is working on. So he recruits David. David and his wife, Ruth, had been all in on the Communist Party for many years as well possibly more enthusiastically than even Julius and Ethel were, according to some letters that they had written and some things that have come out in the years since this happened. But Julius was the one that recruited them. And then David brought information from what he was working on to Julius to be passed on to his contacts in the Soviet Union. Now, June 15th, 1950, David Greenglass was arrested for spying and he immediately admitted his guilt <laughs> so they found him out and he was immediately like yes i did it and i will give you names <laughs> he gave several names including co-workers of his at los alamos and he gave up julius and his sister ethel so he turned on them right away in order to save himself and his wife who initially was being looked at Ruth Greenglass was being looked at as a potential spy as well. David said, leave my wife out of it. I'll give you names. Hmm. And so they dropped the charges against Ruth and started to focus on Julius and Ethel. So in July of 1950, a month after David was arrested, Julius was arrested. They did the same thing to Julius that they did to David, which was like, give us names and we'll go easy on you. And Julius said, no, I am innocent and I will give you no names. And so the prosecution was like, we need to up the pressure on this guy because we believe that he is the ringleader of a massive spy ring because David had said Julius was the one who recruited him. So if Julius had recruited him, he must know tons of people. So the prosecutor, Miles Lane, said in a meeting of the prosecution, he is quoted as saying, like, we don't have a strong case against his wife, but we should include her because convicting her and giving her a stiff penalty will be a huge deterrent to other people to make an example of this woman. And J. Edgar Hoover, who was also in that meeting, was like, yes, 
also, if we pursue charges against the wife, that will be a lever to put pressure on Julius to give up more names. Mm -hmm. It worked with David, for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we brought his wife into it, and he just started writing things down. So that's exactly what they did. They put pressure on Julius, and he never budged. He hmm. never admitted any ounce of guilt, and he never gave up any names. Meanwhile, David and Ruth Greenglass, the brother and sister-in-law of Ethel Rosenberg, came back for a grand jury trial right before they were to be tried, and they amended statements that they made immediately after David's arrest. And they both said what happened was not that David took his information on the atomic bomb and gave it to Julius on a street corner in New York, like we originally said when we were arrested. What actually happened is that David went over to the Rosenberg's house to give Julius this information, and he gave the information to Julius, and Julius said, Ethel, type this up. And Ethel sat down with the typewriter at a bridge table in their living room and typed up all of the information that David had and gave it to Julius and Julius delivered it to his handler in the Soviet Union. Hmm. So this implicated Ethel, mm -hmm. of course, suddenly she goes from being sort of maybe aware of what was going on to being like there and participating. Mm hmm. So they have a grand jury hearing on August 11th. They bring Ethel in to testify and she pleads the fifth the whole time. She doesn't say anything. Hmm. Pleads the fifth and they immediately arrest her. So they have arrested Julius and Ethel Rosenberg plus another co-worker of Julius's named Morton Sobel. They have arrested David Greenglass. They initially arrested Ruth, but they have released her. They decide to have the trial for the Rosenbergs and Morton Sobel together. And that was on March 6th, 1951. And David Greenglass was the primary witness for the prosecution. Hmm. And he gives testimony of everything that he provided to Julius. And in doing that, there was a, the issue of this man gave secrets and if he's going to say out loud what secrets he gave in a court of law, then they are no longer secret. Mm -hmm. So there was a bit of an issue there and they scrambled and they talked to the people at Los Alamos and they're like, what can we declassify and what can we have him talk about? The judge eventually decided to kick everybody out of the courtroom aside from the jury. And then he was like, okay, you're going to hear testimony jury, but like, be cool about it. <laughs> listen, but don't really listen, okay? I mean, listen, but then, like, forget what you heard. <laughs> like, and then he even said to all of the reporters who were reporting on the thing, like, have some discretion in what you are going to report. Which I get, but uh, maybe it's the world that we live in currently. That's hilarious to me to assume that <laughs> they're not going to just say everything say even it anyway. if it's a, a matter of national security but by this time it's 1951 the war is long over the bomb done been dropped both of them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, everybody knows the united states has the atomic bomb and at this point 
the Soviet Union has the atomic bomb also. Mm -hmm. So another point of contention in this trial is did the information that Julius passed on lead to the Soviet Union being able to develop atomic bomb technology? Mm. And at the time, the argument was absolutely yes. They had that technology. They developed that bomb way faster than we expected that they would. So certainly this information that was given to them helped. Mm -hmm. The trial wraps up on March 29th and the Rosenbergs are convicted of espionage, as was Morton Sobel. On April 5th, they had the sentencing and... One of the prosecutors was a man named Roy Cohn, and he the entire time was very aggressive. And he went on to later be a prosecutor on behalf of Senator Joseph McCarthy during the McCarthy hearings and all of that. He was very involved in the Red Scare of the time. He was very instrumental in pushing forward the very anti-communist panic that was happening in the 1950s and 60s mm. so for him to have been on this case he even admitted later in things that he pushed for the judge that was placed on the case he pushed for the prosecutors who were assigned to the case knowing that those were people who would be very aggressive and he made a personal recommendation a personal request to the judge who he had pushed to be put on this case a man named Kaufman he asked that judge to pursue the death penalty hmm. and even J. Ed Edgar Hoover was like maybe we don't hmm. do the death penalty maybe especially not against Ethel she is a young mother of two the case is not especially strong against her this might not look very good to put her to death and Roy Cohn was like, oh, no, we're doing this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so on April 5th, they were sentenced to death. Mm. In the sentencing hearing, Judge Kaufman even said, you put communism above everything else. You put communism above your children. And what you did led to the communist aggression in Korea that we are witnessing now and the deaths of 50,000 people in Korea are on your head. Damn. So blamed them for Korea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Morton Sobel, on the other hand, was sentenced to 17 years. And David Greenglass was sentenced to 15 and he only served nine and a half. Huh. So these two were absolutely like made an example of. Yeah. I think a lot of it was because they refused to name names mm -hmm. and or ever admit any guilt. They maintained their complete innocence the entire time. And the government, after they had been sentenced, came to them and said, we will amend the sentence. We will remove the death penalty if you admit your guilt and give us more names. And they put out a joint statement that, and I'm quoting this, by asking us to repudiate the truth of our innocence, the government admits its own doubts concerning our guilt. We will not be coerced, even under pain of death, to bear false witness. Mm. So they said absolutely not. Wow. And there were campaigns to stop their execution. 
some in the United States, but because the panic of communism was at such a fever pitch at that point in time, mm-hmm. most people were like, hell yeah, fry them. Yeah. <laughs> and the majority of the campaigns to stop their execution were happening abroad in other countries, especially in Western Europe. A lot of people spoke out and said like, this should not happen. This is too much of a penalty for what happened. We can't even be absolutely sure what they did. They maintain their innocence. There were a lot of artists who spoke out, Frida Kahlo, Picasso. There were politicians from other countries as well. But yeah, there were many campaigns to stop the execution. The Pope called Eisenhower and requested that he stop the execution. And Eisenhower was like, nah. <laughs> Dang. Sorry, Pope. But, you know, everybody really hates communists here right now. And I'm not about to let my popularity dip by letting these commies off the hook. Yikes. On June 19th of 1953, they were executed. Julius died after his first shock. Ethel was shocked the standard three times and then they removed the equipment and a doctor came up to verify that she was no longer alive and he heard a heartbeat. So they hooked her back up and they shocked her an additional two times and witnesses say that smoke came from her head. Oh no. Yeah. So also a brutal end there. Yeah. They were the only Americans to be put to death for espionage in peacetime. And Ethel remains the only woman to be put to death by the United States government for anything other than murder. Wow. Ethel was especially vilified during the trial for, like I said, choosing communism over her kids. Uh And they really tried to portray her as extremely cold and unloving and There was an article that I read, a very good in-depth article that was an interview with their children. So like I said, they had two kids, Michael and Robert, who were six and ten when they were executed. This article that I read, so they were obviously orphaned by the United States government and no one in their family would take them and raise them. They had a large family, many aunts and uncles, but nobody wanted to take them and a lot of it had to do with the person that turned them in was their uncle. And so people sided with David. So they were raised by their grandmother briefly, but she was elderly and it was a real struggle for her. So eventually they were adopted by a couple named Abel and Anne Mirapol, who were left-winged activists. One of them actually, uh, the man Abel Mirapol wrote a famous like anti-war anthem called Strange Fruit. It didn't ring a bell for me, but... Uh um, Apparently it was pretty popular, but they adopted them and they took on the Mirapol last name and they lived in secrecy until the 1970s when they were found out and their name was published. But this article talks about, so Michael, especially he was 10 when they were killed. He had memories of them and he was like, our mother loved us. Even the time that she was in jail, we got letters from her constantly. There were letters to the prosecutor where she was asking about her kids and giving like parental advice to whoever was caring for them. And she had gone to a child psychologist a lot to get parenting advice. Before all of this happened, she was very devoted to her kids. 
but was also very devoted to her husband. And so when he said, we're going to maintain our innocence and we're not going to turn anyone in, like that was a very hard choice that they made to say, like, we're going to let the government <laughs> orphan our kids because we refuse to incriminate ourselves or anyone else. Mm -hmm. Michael tells stories of like the visits that they did in jail and how his mother always had a brave face and like they would play together. And he said he played hangman with his dad on visits. And he was like, the irony of that only hit me when I was an adult. <laughs> totally oh, crazy. No. <laughs> <laughs> wonder whose idea that was. Hey, dad, let's play hangman like we used to. He's like, does it have to be that? <laughs> I don't like that game anymore, bud. <laughs> yeah. He remembered going to the final visit with his mom and he knew what was happening. And he remembered being a little disturbed by the fact that she didn't cry and that she put on a brave face and was still like cheerful and happy with that. And then he received a letter, the final letter from their parents. And she said, you may have noticed that I did not cry and it's not because I didn't want to, but because what you needed in that moment was love and care. And it would have been selfish of me to cry in that moment and take even a minute of love and happiness away from you Aww. because of how I felt. You know, they just profess, just remember that mommy and daddy love you so much like this letter. It was really heartbreaking. In 1995, there were the Venona papers and they were declassified and it was a whole lot of messages between Soviet intelligence agencies that had been intercepted and decrypted by the United States between the years 1943 and 1980. So of course this covers the time period where the Rosenbergs were involved with the Soviets. And in those papers it was confirmed that, yes, they were guilty. Oh. Julius, specifically. He had two different code names in these papers, Antenna and Liberal, and he did give information. However, nothing he gave was useful regarding the development of the atomic bomb. <laughs> it was information that the Soviets already had ah. from other spies and later... Soviet engineers who worked on that project said, like, we were already there and what we were getting from the United States, we were just using as like a check against what we had already developed. Uh -huh. And certainly what Julius provided was not advancing them in any way. Hmm. It was information they already had for one and for two, like they had already gotten to this point. So. Michael, their son, he was like, I had such a hard time with those papers because there was the proof that, yes, they had spied. And I had believed all this time that they were innocent because they maintained their innocence. Mm -hmm. And so then I was initially really mad <laughs> at my dad for not admitting it. And then I thought about it. And in his mind, he was innocent of what they accused him of, which was atomic bomb spying yeah when really what he had been giving them was some other information about like weapons other types of weapons that were created but all of it was kind of like inconsequential he never gave anything that ended up being important 
but he did do it. So he was able to do these like mental gymnastics. Yeah. I think to convince himself that like I didn't do what they said I did. I'm I did something else. <laughs> Sir, did you give tips about how to build an atomic bomb? No. And that is the truth. Did you do yeah. other things? Yeah. <laughs> sure did. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't ask me that, so <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It definitely he was doing some like mental gymnastics to like yeah. convince himself of his own innocence. He was absolutely a spy. He did a hundred percent recruit people. Yeah. And that was stated in the Venona papers as well. David and Ruth Greenglass were both also named in the Venona papers. So they absolutely were spying. I mean, they, well, David admitted it. Ruth yeah. never did. But Ethel was not codenamed. She was mentioned in the Venona papers as Liberal's wife. Mm -hmm. And that David, I can't remember his codename, but that he was her brother. Like, she was mentioned in that way. But she was also mentioned as a devoted communist. But, quote, does not work. So was not a spy. Mm. so julius did it ethel absolutely knew what julius was doing was mm -hmm. supportive of what we, he was doing was not participating wow in 2008 morton sobel who had been tried with them and served the 17 years gave an interview with the new york times and he backed up what was shown in the venona papers which was julius gave information None of it was useful about the bomb. And most of what he gave was junk. Mm -hmm. And all of that was corroborated by a former Soviet. It was his handler, Julius's handler. And Morton also said Ethel knew what Julius was doing, but did not participate. <laughs> so that was another like him saying Ethel was not involved. So Ethel was not a spy. Julius was, but he wasn't very good at it. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. And then in 1996, David Greenglass gave an interview where he admitted that he had lied about his sister. And this is a quote from him. He said, I told them the story and I left her out of it. Right. But my wife put her in it. So what am I going to do? Call my wife a liar? My wife is my wife. I mean, I don't sleep with my sister. You know, I frankly think my wife did the typing but I don't really remember. So the most damning evidence of the trial was David painting that picture of Ethel sitting there in their living room, typing up this information and passing it on. And now here he is in 1996 saying she didn't do that. I think my wife did. Oh no. But I was going to throw my sister under the bus for my wife. Like I made that choice. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, uh, Robert and Michael are working to have their parents exonerated posthumously, obviously, and have been working to build a case in which their names would be cleared. They ran into an issue with that, though, in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected president because one of his advisors was Roy Cohn. Oh, the prosecutor who prosecutes. So they're like, well, I don't think that he's going to be very interested in what we have to say. <laughs> uh, 
So that sort of took a backseat, but they are working on building their case and hope to bring it to Biden to talk to him about potentially exonerating at least their mother. Yeah. The article that I read, the interview with Michael and Robert, it talked about this journalist who is working on writing a book about Ethel and how she was handled in the media and the way that she was vilified in these ways that were ultimately not true. It was all very interesting. It's a crazy story. Yeah. How those two were made an example of, essentially. And at any other period in history, at any other point of in time, when the country was not whipped up into this fever, there's no way they would have been executed. Mm-hmm. Jailed, certainly. Mm-hmm. And definitely Julius, because, I mean, dude did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a very interesting deep dive. And there's more to it. I feel like I was pretty thorough. Yeah. <laughs> this has been a long episode. But, of course, there's always more to it. There's plenty to read. There's this really touching picture of them kissing for the last time in jail. They were devoted to each other above everything else. I mean, obviously, they were devoted to communism. <laughs> they were communists. Obviously. Clearly. <laughs> but their sons had talked about how they believed, even though... Ethel was very into communism. They believe that they made the decision to leave her out of what Julius was doing. She knew, but she did not participate, hoping that if he got caught, she would be off the hook and be able to care for their kids. Yeah. Which obviously did not work. Yeah, no. But they made the decision to not turn people in. And another thing that their sons say is like the people they would have been turning in were like their friends and family. Mm-hmm. which david had no qualms about doing i was gonna say yeah david just fucking sang yeah <laughs> like he, he had no qualms yeah her death was ugly but that betrayal was uglier yeah <laughs> that fits in the theme very yeah very good her, her yeah her brother threw her under the bus for his wife when he didn't even really have to yeah like their case against her was so thin and he was it yeah, he was pretty much the only thing. Yeah. He amended his statement to include her. Yikes. Yeah. Very interesting little snapshot of a specific period of time. And, yeah. Uh, I'm glad that their sons eventually did find a family that took really good care of them. And they said that they were very lucky to have been adopted by those two. And they went on. They're professors. They've got families and everything. That was very nice to hear that, especially after, you know, you lose your parents and then your none of your family wants to take you in because you're essentially a pariah at six and ten year old. Yeah, wild story. Great one. That's everything I have about the Rosenbergs. That's everything. That's a lot of things. I gave a lot of information to you. That <laughs> that is enough. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you have going on? Where can we find you? Where can we find the farm? So, speaking of farm betrayals, <laughs> my dog will claim that I betrayed him by having him neutered a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I took him to the vet for what he thought was a routine procedure and uh, yeah. what he thought was nail trimmings and a grooming, and he came back with no testicles. So <laughs> I think that's the ultimate betrayal yeah. for a farm dog. I yeah, think. I think so. In my defense, he had prostate issues and was whiz blood. So, okay, that's a little traumatic <laughs> on my part. But... Yeah, so farm betrayal, if that counts. All right. 
But if you want to see fun videos of my sweet neutered dog, <laughs> you can find us on TikTok, where I'm posting at least once a week. I post videos from around the farm. Mm-hmm. We got turkeys going on right now, and our meat birds are out on pasture. Everybody's getting big. Everybody's loving fall as it's coming along, cool weather and whatnot. So you can find us on TikTok and Facebook. You can also find us on our website at crimsonmoonfarm.com. All right. I have some shows coming up at the end of September and in October that I'm excited about. So definitely come find me also if you want to come laugh at stuff. I promise not to talk for many minutes about spies. <laughs> That's what Uh, this platform is for. Yeah. (laughs) So, yes, you can find me. I am on Facebook and Instagram at Shanda Sung on TikTok and Twitter. I re-downloaded Twitter. I did it. (laughs) (laughs) So Shanda S. Panda on both of those. And you can find me. I've got some clips of of my stand-up pictures. I've got uh, announcements about upcoming shows so you can find all of that you can also find this podcast passing notes with ashley and shanda on facebook and instagram and passing notes podcast on tiktok and find us in all of those places rate and review reach out to us let us know what you like about the show what you might want us to talk about in the future we would love to hear from you and above all i hope you share this show with your best friend even if she is sitting with the popular kids at the moment (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and like every week i want to thank my husband tyler for helping us record edit and produce this show if he ever snitches on my behalf like david did Mm. we're done (laughs) snitches get stitches yeah (laughs) and of course we want to thank you all for listening this was episode 78 this was a fun one yeah we love a good scandal and new history how about that yeah there you go (laughs) more than what you were taught in school yes yes (laughs) we like to fill in the gaps where public school has let you down For Shanda Sung, I am Ashley Morgan. Join us next time on Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Dude, get it together. We're like almost 80 episodes in and I'm like still like, now where is the, where does it say that? that? (laughs) Been looking at this thing for (laughs) days by this point. Yeah. (laughs) 80 hours worth. Yeah. (laughs) 